Today on the Bill Kelly Show podcast, the union that represents about 5,000 hospital workers in Hamilton warning that bigger provincial cuts are coming to area hospitals. A new Ipsos poll conducted on behalf of Global News shows the Liberals and Conservatives are in a dead heat on the election trail. Day 7 of the federal election, is the race going to remain tight right up until voting day on October 21st? Oil prices surging Monday in the aftermath of an attack on one of the world's biggest crude oil processing plants, but analysts don't anticipate a big jump at Canadian pumps just yet today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml to begin the day today the union that represents about 5,000 hospital workers here in hamilton is warning that bigger provincial cuts are coming to area hospitals just you wait says qp hamilton health sciences and st joe's Healthcare are being told to trim their budgets by 42 million dollars this fiscal year hhs has been told to cut $30 million from its $1.3 million budget. St. Joseph's has to trim $12 million from its $550 million budget. And since 2011, HHS has had to cut its budget by $200 million. St. Joe's has swung the axe to the tune of $94 million. Joining us now on the program is Michael Hurley, the president of CUPE's Ontario Council of Hospital Unions, and he joins us now. Good morning, Michael. Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. I I know you guys are doing a uh, news conference at 10 o'clock this morning uh, outside the HHS administrative offices on King Street West, so we appreciate uh, the time this morning. We'll begin with this. We know that budget cuts ultimately mean layoffs, plain and simple. So when the government talks about finding efficiencies, which this government did during the election campaign last year, and they have been talking about that, tightening the budget uh, through their first mandate, they ultimately mean job cuts. So how many cuts are we looking at here in Hamilton? Well, uh, to meet the budget targets the Conservatives have set out in a five-year timeline, uh, it it pretty clear that Hamilton hospitals will have to cut about 76 beds and 600 staff. Uh, but when you factor in the impact of um, growth and aging, the um, that is felt like an impact of closing about um, uh, 250 beds and uh, getting rid of about 2,000 hospital staff. I.e., this is an issue that's not going away anytime soon. No, uh, the uh, cuts the Conservatives have outlined in their provincial budget uh, build on one another so that we start off with $42 million for Hamilton hospitals being cut in this fiscal year, but by uh, 2023, we're looking at $255 million. So each year, the, the cuts compound and they get worse. Yeah, And all the while, I mean, we're not getting any younger. Our society is getting older we're going to have more people relying on the hospital system well that's the problem isn't it i mean the uh, the population over 65 is going to double over 75 triple over 90 uh, will quadruple and the population is going to grow by 30 percent and that's going to happen for hamilton niagara hospitals at the same time as there's this 
uh, relatively uh, significant, like a 15% budget cut in real terms by 2023. Begin so the day today, the union got, that represents uh, about 5,000 hospital workers here in Hamilton is warning that bigger provincial cuts baby are coming to area hospitals. Who are Just you wait, care and often says to hospitals Hamilton Health Sciences and St. Joe's Healthcare uh, are being told to trim their budgets by $42 million dollars. Uh, this fiscal year, HHS and for has been told and, to cut uh, $30 million staying in hospital from its $1.3 million St. Joseph's uh, has to trim $12 million The province has promised to end so-called hallway health care by expanding and since 2011, HHS has had to cut its budget by $200 uh, million. Cancelling one Joe's uh, for the sake of the acts to the tune of 94 well, million. Well, I mean, uh, in fairness, home care budgets have gone Joining up. Joining us now on the program is Michael Hurley, is the president uh, of QP's Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. And he joins us now. Good morning, Michael. Long term care facilities well, operating budgets. Thanks for joining us today. By about I, I know you guys are doing a uh, news conference the, at 10 o'clock this um, morning uh, outside the HHS. So, administrative uh, offices you know, on King Street West, so we appreciate an, an uh, the time this morning. We've added another we'll begin with this. We know that budget cuts ultimately uh, mean six layoffs, so. So plain and simple. The so when the government talks about finding up, efficiencies, and, which this I mean, the core problem government really did during the election Ontario campaign last year, and they have been talking about that, tightening the budget through their first mandate, they ultimately mean job cuts. So how many cuts are we looking at here in Hamilton? Uh, the demands that are coming well, at us. Uh, so we're spending the, the most. Are we spending that money wisely? Are we doing the right thing? Five-year timeline. No, I'm sorry. Uh, we're spending the least. It's pretty clear. We spend about dollars less cut per person in Ontario for hospital care than they would in the average of the other provinces. So we spend. Growth and amount less. The, We've um, got probably the most efficient like an system in the country, the shortest links of space, fewer staff working in the system, uh, 250 and fewer beds, beds and, uh, but the problem is, as you can see from the hallway medicine, uh, i.e., this is an issue that's not going away beds, anytime right? soon. There's at any one time no, over uh, a thousand people the, uh, waiting cuts for the conservatives uh, have outlined in their Ontario hospital hallway uh, and that's a problem and that will only get worse. And start off so, with you know, for the period of Hamilton uh, the next 20 years or so, this we need to be open-minded about 2023. Administrative uh, offices on King Street West to release protected Hamilton hospitals' provincial funding shortfalls based on uh, fiscal plans of the Conservative uh, government to 2023. Significant, what like should the government be doing? Can they can they effectively fund so hospitals and long-term or home care facilities at the same time? Is there enough money to go around? And you've got a tidal well, wave I mean, of aging baby boomers who are you know needing care and often coming to hospitals for the very first time for serious. Uh, any problems and they're, and they're going to increase in any state in the United uh, States or delays the very lowest for admission and uh, difficulty staying in hospital uh, and uh, not getting in at all. And, I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is uh, going we to be increasingly a problem. The province has promised to end uh, so-called hallway uh, health care by expanding
There's really home no other care alternative and lung care. We don't have enough uh, is that spending just, going on uh, in the short term. Canceling and one uh, that for the sake the of the investments other? that are required to meet the well, I mean, uh, the uh, challenges uh, that are coming as the baby have gone up by about five percent in this Those budget. investments are long required budgets are only up by one percent. So that's also a real cut. Then you can withdraw the long term care facilities operating budgets. You know when they were reduced by about ten percent over the we were over the period of twenty twenty three. We 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 didn't. You know, uh, meet us to give you uh, an, you an know, idea. Uh, by not building we've schools, added another one thousand people to long-term care waiting lists. We've uh, in the last uh, six met months or so. so the now number of people waiting ages, for admission is going up. We're not up. prepared to meet. And I mean, our problem really is that on very simply not right. Every other problem. It's interesting as the population ages. We know that they're going to rely more on the healthcare system as they get older. But budgets seem to be going the other way. Shouldn't it be the reverse? Knowing that we're going to have a bunch of not only so we're spending the most. Are we spending that money wisely? Are we doing the right healthcare? Things. And some of that will be I'm hospital sorry, related. I can't recall the last time a hospital budget went up per person in Ontario uh, for in real terms uh, than they would uh, in hospital budgets uh, in the average you know, of the other um, provinces. So we spend uh, have a huge uh, amount less under got their real the cost efficient for some time in the country, the shortest you see the impact, you know, working in the system, and it's and not sustainable, and I don't think problem it's more, you can see from the hallway medicine, what crisis we don't have enough as somebody who's very seriously one-time over a thousand people in hallways waiting for their proper bed in Ontario hospital hallways, really, and that's on real that will only get worse, and they have no, you know, for the period of privacy screen that they're under 20 years or so, we need no ability to have a conversation about or stepping up or a doctor or a nurse or a family member about what might be you know, a very demand. serious illness. That's really the, the, final, the core the problem final we moment. have, I think. Have no access We're chatting with Michael Hurley. He's the president you know, of like CUPE's Ontario a, Council of uh, Hospitals you know, Union here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Sanford in for Bill today. The union is going to be holding a news conference at 10 this morning just outside the HHS administrative offices on King Street West to release projected Hamilton Hospital's Provincial the, funding the shortfalls based on uh, fiscal plans of the Conservative government into uh, to 2023. Or, uh, what should the government be doing? Can they can they effectively fund hospitals and long-term no, or home care uh, facilities at the same of, time? Of is there enough money and, to go around? So, uh, you know, there, well, I mean, there, the, there the practical is, problem the Ontario you know, government has um, is that you know it's been committed since the McGinty complex to having the lowest residents and to provide them with the kind of care that any province in Canada or any state in the United States. Just increasing budgets isn't the only answer. Throwing money at, a, at an issue or a problem isn't going and, to solve it. You uh, need to have you know, a solid uh, plan to, in place as well. We have to revise that up, unfortunately. No, absolutely. Um, and the, you know, and bear the, in mind, uh, Ontario has you know, there's really no you know, other alternative. Uh, Hamilton area hospitals we don't have Niagara hospitals spending have going on in the short term. Intensive and I'd emphasize that that's still the investments that are required to meet the challenges that are coming as the baby boom generation ages. Those investments are not required as the baby boom generation Starts to 
by not building schools, we built schools delivering quality care to, uh, to the population. We met our social obligations. Now, um, that generation the current ages, level of resources, we're not prepared to I, meet I don't know that there's any other way to their health care um, needs. And then you're already right. operating a system. It's interesting. As the population the ages, the we know that they're like going to rely more on the health care system as they get older. But budgets seem to be going the other way. Shouldn't it be the reverse, knowing that we're going to have a bunch of not only baby boomers, but the following generations accessing health care? We only have about a minute for this next answer. But when we talk about budget cuts and job cuts, where are these people going? Uh, where where terms, are they off to uh, next? Are, are they becoming budget, PSWs? You know, are they going um, to another city, another uh, province? Have uh, been kept under their real well, I mean, costs the uh, for the some time. Contracts, and the hospital you see the impacts are, are, are pretty, uh, and it's not know, sustainable. Pretty, uh, and I don't think it's morally sustainable uh, either. Uh, I mean, we wouldn't typically the, uh, you know, life experience uh, unless there is a very seriously a large layoff. It will start to see that like a large cut. They're relegated to you know this as plan. So while there are a couple of years, wheels that uh, they, people that they can rely on, they have no, redeployed no privacy, they might have a privacy screen, but they're under bright to retire, but we'll, no we'll ability to have a conversation with a chaplain or a, uh, or a doctor or a nurse be, or a family uh, member about what uh, might be, you know, people, you know, people uh, very serious illnesses or even their final, you know, uh, their final moments, to, they have no access they will. To a washroom, to what you know, like that's do, not I, a, you know, I can only speculate. Uh, you know, about that. that's not a Michael. Appreciate the time today. Way for people to be treated oh, in so a very wealthy province. Michael Hurley, and president of Kippy's Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. Again, uh, Hamilton you know, Health Sciences and St. Joseph's Healthcare to being told to trim their budgets by forty-two million dollars this fiscal year. HHS by thirty million, St. Joe's by twelve million. And in a statement, Kippy President Dave Murphy says, "Quote: What's coming will be much bigger because the impact of the cuts." will be compounded, referring to no, your aging population uh, and the care of, that they are staff. going to need and, and in the so, next few years. Uh, you know, there, there, there is, um, you know, um, an inability of the staff to meet the uh, the complex needs of those of those residents and to and to provide them with the kind of care that they need to, and that's not right either. Should mention too that I mean, just increasing budgets isn't the only answer. Throwing money at, a, at an issue or a problem isn't going to solve it. You need to have a solid plan in place as well. No, absolutely. But, you know, bear in mind, Ontario has restructured, you know, uh, Hamilton area hospitals and Niagara hospitals have gone through uh, intensive restructuring and it's still ongoing. Um, you know, there's been a reorganization of home care. Um, you know, there's been there's a reorganization of, of ambulance services and public health services underway. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, been a tremendous effort put on uh, trying to operate a lean system and uh, it should be obvious to anyone i think now that the system is simply incapable of delivering quality care to uh to the population that needs it needs it from it um with the current level of resources i i I don't know that there's any other way um you know you're already operating a system that has the fewest staff and the fewest beds like there isn't a more efficient system uh, you know, so at a certain point, you have to ask yourself whether, um, you know, it might need an investment to add capacity to meet demand. I think that's really where we're at. We only have about a minute uh, for this next answer. But when we talk about budget cuts and job cuts, where are these people going? Where, where are they off to next? Are, are they becoming PSWs? Are they going to another city out of province? Well, I mean, the hospital, uh, the hospital contracts, the hospital collective agreements are 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 pretty, uh, you know, are pretty um, 
uh, uh, good. And typically, uh, you know, uh, unless there is a uh, a large layoff, and we'll start to see that, like a large cut, and we'll start to see that happen um, as we go out a couple of years, uh, people can be uh, redeployed into vacancies or they can be enticed to to retire, but we'll we'll soon reach a point where there will be uh, where there will be um, uh, you know people people laid off, and um, you know uh, as to as to what they will as to what they will do, I you know I can only speculate about that. Michael, appreciate the time today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Michael Hurley, president of QB's Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. Again, Hamilton Health Sciences and St. Joseph's Healthcare being told to trim their budgets by $42 million this fiscal year. HHS by $30 million, St. Joe's by $12 million. And uh, in a statement, QP President Dave Murphy says, quote, what's coming will be much bigger because the impact of the cuts will be compounded, referring to our aging population and the care that they are going to need in the next few years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A new Ipsos poll conducted on behalf of Global News shows the liberals and conservatives are in a dead heat on the election trail, suggesting the events of the campaign will determine the outcome of of the election and it should be very interesting it already has been for the last six plus days but from here on in uh, we've had the snc lavalin affair earlier on this year it reared its ugly head quote unquote in the last uh, or in the first couple of days of the election campaign the conservatives continuing to benefit from the most motivated voter base well let's bring in daryl bricker he's the ceo of ipsos and he joins us now on the bill kelly show daryl how are you I'm doing great. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us this morning. So if the election were held tomorrow, we'd have a toss-up here. Yeah, we really would. And, you know, one of the things that we didn't have in the release is uh, some of the work that we've been doing on trying to estimate what's happening in various seats. And there's, you know, 35 seats, 30 seats in Ontario right now that are within five points. So not as a, not only is it really close in terms of a national vote at 35-35 for the Liberals and the Conservatives. There's a lot of very, very tight races in important places that um, still have not been decided. Any of those in the Hamilton area? Yeah, Hamilton's interesting because the NDP usually does pretty well. Progressive parties usually do pretty well, but we're seeing that the Liberals are coming on a little bit, but so are the Greens. So it's the progressive vote is fragmented out a little bit, and uh, it hasn't been necessarily to the benefit of the NDP, uh, but it hasn't necessarily helped out the Liberal Party either because they're, they're really not consolidating around one choice. Uh, the uh, Liberals are ahead by eight in the province of Ontario, but in the 905 and the greater uh, you know region around the city of Toronto, the, the the, uh, the actual race is very close. It's within three points. Interesting. So uh, if the election were held tomorrow, 35% of decided voters would vote for the Liberal Party, led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. 35% of decided voters would vote for the Conservative Party, led by Andrew Scheer. And then it really trickles down from there. I mean, there's a wide gap between first and uh, one A and one B and then the rest of the clan. Yeah, there really is. The next party we get to is the uh, is the NDP at fourteen, and then the Greens are at at, at nine. They're in single digits, but uh, it's really a tale of two countries right now. Uh, when you go. Uh, um, 
from the Ontario border west, it's pretty much blue. Even in British Columbia, the, the Conservatives are doing reasonably well. But when you get to Ontario and you take it further east, the Liberal Party is doing better. Uh, with Atlantic Canada, we have the Liberals and the Conservatives tied. So kind of representative of what's going on nationally. So we have the two parts of the country looking at the race very differently right now. It's interesting because Atlantic Canada seems to be, I know there's not a lot of, uh, not a ton of seats out there, but it really seems to be a wild card. There's both blue and red. Yeah, blue and red. And, and the interesting thing is that the Liberals, uh, in order to win a majority, need to hold on to every seat that they have. They're probably going to lose a bunch in Ontario, and they're probably going to lose a bunch in, uh, in in Western Canada. So when you start taking a look at Quebec and Atlantic Canada in particular, last time around, they won all 32 seats. Well, they're not going to make any of them up there uh, this time around, and they're probably going to lose a few. So in that kind of a circumstance, um, when you start trying to build up a majority going across the country and counting seats, uh, Atlantic Canada becomes crucial for the Liberal Party because they have to make up what they're going to lose in other places. The Liberals are up a couple of points from the last uh, survey. Uh, are we seeing them trending even higher in the surveys to come, or is that really hard to predict? Really hard to predict. They've, they've moved on a couple of the important leading indicators, which are approval of, of the government's performance before it was down at 36. It's now up into the mid-40s and deserve to re-elect, which is usually a really good number that aligns with how a, a, an incumbent uh, party usually performs in an election. Uh, and it's now moved up to 39, which is pretty close to where they were in the last election campaign. So they're definitely competitive. They have a little bit of momentum, but they're not breaking out right now. A new Ipsos poll conducted on behalf of Global News shows the Liberals and Conservatives are in a dead heat on the election trail. We're chatting with Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill. Another interesting statistic that uh, caught my eye is that 2 in 10 Canadians, so 20%, either don't know who they would vote for and another 10% uh, uh, or would not vote at all, which seems to be rather high. Well, actually, it's kind of low. Uh, Is it low? It, 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 yeah, it may it may look high in absolute terms, but in comparison to uh, previous elections, remember, forty percent, about forty percent of the population that's eligible to vote is not going to vote. Right. So, um, in two thousand eleven, the turnout was sixty. In two thousand fifteen, it was around sixty eight. So it was a it was a it was a bit better. So twenty percent saying that they're not going to vote or they haven't really figured it out and probably aren't going to vote because they haven't figured it out well the numbers actually double <laughs> hmm. well, uh, and because because people want to say the right thing sometimes and they in, they intend to do it but they just don't get around to it right uh, another interesting uh, stat about three in ten 27 percent of canadians are changing their allegiances they say that they're going to be voting for a different party than the one that they supported in 2015 yeah, and that's that accounts for seeing what we're seeing with the Green Party, for example, up to 9%, and also the Conservatives are up a little bit compared to what, where they were. So this is mainly Liberal uh, partisans uh, and NDP partisans, actually more Liberal this time around, thinking that they're going to consider another progressive option, which is a big problem for the Liberal Party. It's not like the Conservatives are actually beating them. They're only about three points higher than they were in the last election campaign. It's that people are considering these other options, and there's a lack of enthusiasm about voting Liberal this time and a sense of disappointment about how the last four years have gone. Ipsos also identifying three important attitudes which drive one's propensity to vote. There's regret, duty, and interest. 
Yeah, one of the things that really is important for pollsters to do, but also people who are looking at the numbers in general, is to get a sense of that uh, the the issue we were just talking about, which was turnout. And it's not just the overall turnout that matters; it's the level of enthusiasm people have about the political choices that they're making now. So what we're trying to do is get at what the level of enthusiasm is for actually showing up on election day. And when you put together those numbers with some other indicators that we have in the survey, they tend to benefit the conservatives. So the liberals, as I said before, are a little bit listless in terms of their political choice right now. The conservatives are really certain that they're going to vote for the conservative party and are absolutely telling us that they're going to show up on election day. And given the demographic profile of their voters, which tends to be older, a little bit wealthy, more middle class, more suburban. These are people who vote. So it, what it shows is the challenge that the liberals have in this election campaign is they've got kind of voters that are sort of iffy on them right now. And, and they, they draw their support from groups of the population that are less attached to the political system, like younger voters, like women, uh, like the less educated in some instances. So, uh, uh, you know, the two voter profiles for those for the two different parties um, really do benefit the conservatives. So if there's a surprise around on Election Day, it'll be around that question. Uh, one last uh, thing that I want to get to before we let you go, Daryl, is that uh, the Greens and the NDP are, du- are dueling for the most popular second choice. Yeah, the NDP seems to have it at the moment. But uh, that idea that there's a group of kind of liberal uh, uh, Green and NDP undefined, less attached voters that can go to any of those parties right now is the real challenge, actually not just facing the NDP and the Greens, but facing the Liberal Party. They've got to get those folks to move over over to them in order to have a chance to form another majority government. Daryl, great job. As always, appreciate the time and uh, best of luck compiling uh, the next data the next time around. And luck is what we'll need. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Daryl. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos, joining us here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Federal election campaign in full swing. Today is day number seven. And as you heard from Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos, this is a very close race. And to summarize, here's Global's David Aiken. Liberals and conservatives both have 35% support among the 2,500 decided and leaning voters surveyed by polling firm Ipsos just after the election was called on September the 11th. The NDP are at 14%, and the Green Party is at 9%. But there is a sharp east-west divide. In B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, the Conservatives lead in each province by a healthy margin. But in Ontario, the Liberals lead by 8 points, and in Quebec, the Liberal lead is 19 points over the Conservatives. In Atlanta, Canada, the two leading parties are tied. Those regional variations could make for a long election night as the final tallies from B.C. could decide the issue on October 21st. David Aiken, Global News, St. John's. Well, let's bring in our next guest. Genevieve Tellier is her name, Professor of School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa and joins us now. Good morning, Genevieve. Good morning, Rick. Uh, no surprise with this latest Ipsos poll, the, the, the PCs are dominating the West, the Liberals dominating the East. No, I'm not really surprised, and um, I must say, since the electoral campaign is very short, I guess we're going to see a poll that every day. So we have seen polls recently, other days, that shows that how close it is uh, nationally. Uh, now, what is, is interesting with this poll is that it was taken during the first two days after the writs were dropped, so when the campaign was launched. And so uh, we know that in an electoral campaign, anything could happen, and we could see some very uh, unforeseen event occurring. Uh, but for a moment, no 
not very surprised. Although, as uh, it was said before, uh, there is a big divide nationally, so it's not the same everywhere uh, in every part of the country. One week into the election campaign, it, it to my mind, it started as expected. Ha- has any of the leaders overly impressed you at all? Um, more or less, uh, probably like many, I think that Jack Nixon's perform a bit better, but the expectations were so low that uh, maybe it was normal to, to see that. Um, also, the green, I would say, perhaps I'm not gaining the momentum I was expecting. I was thinking they would be a bit more dynamic and more focused on environmental issues, and I don't see that issue being really discussed for the moment, so we'll see if it gains traction. Um, but for the other party, um, yes, I would say probably what I was expecting, although because the campaign is very short, it's somewhat bizarre to say to see that everybody is cautious and things are starting slowly to develop. So we've seen big announcement yesterday and even this morning by the Liberals, um, but uh, it's, it's taking many days, and I think the biggest news or biggest promises we'll see uh, in a few weeks or a few days. The Liberals' election message is, uh, hey, hey, Canada, let's move forward. The Tories are saying, uh, you know, it's time for you to get ahead. Which message is going to ring true more for voters? That's an excellent question. And it's I, both parties are, are tr- scratching their heads trying to figure out what it is. And what's interesting is that their messaging is different. So uh, they have... Uh, they have decoded the mood of the Canadian voter differently, and that's what makes it interesting, this campaign. So for the Liberals, it's about collective rights. It's moving forward as, as a society, and so it doesn't target specifically uh, individuals. Um, conservative is the other approach, so it's for you. The you is important in their messaging. And so how the conservative could help the life of everybody, especially with uh, tax cuts, while the liberals, and even this morning we saw an announcement on that, liberals want to spend more collectively for child cares, for the middle class, for families with children, um, and, and other things like that. So the the, the, the way we are seeing the message show us two different perspectives from the main two parties. Our guest is Genevieve Tellier, professor at School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. One of the people we haven't talked about is PPC leader Maxime Bernier, who's going to be part of the upcoming debates coming up. Is that not only good news for Bernier, but bad news for Andrew Scheer? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's bad news. Uh, Bernier must be very happy. Uh, he was asking for that. I'm not entirely sure what were the criteria for this change of decision because uh, this probability of winning writings uh, is still not clear for me. Um, I say that because we have a by-election a few months ago uh, in Ontario especially, and the PPC did not perform very well. And In fact, it performed badly. That, I think or 3% of the vote. Uh, Bernier must have more than that. He is also struggling in his own part, in his own riding in Quebec. So in Quebec, that party doesn't get any traction at all. Um, now, um, for Bernier, this going to the leaders' debate will give him exposure. So that's what he's looking for. He wants to articulate his idea in front of Canadian, and so that's the big opportunity that he has. Uh, but the fact that he was the second runner-up in the uh, conservative leadership, he won about uh, 49% of the support of conservative members, and he doesn't perform uh, well now, that's prob- that's 
problématique pour lui. Donc, comment il gagne plus de support Le seul support qu'il peut attraper est des conservateurs. Donc, c'est pourquoi les conservateurs ne sont pas satisfaits avec ça. Et surtout les conservateurs qui sont maintenant donnés beaucoup de taxes de crédit et qui disent qu'ils ne vont pas balancer le budget très rapidement. Ça peut ne pas beaucoup de base conservative. Et donc, ils peuvent être intéressés à regarder Bernier. Donc, oui, c'est une bonne nouvelle pour Bernier, une bonne nouvelle pour les conservateurs aussi, c'est sûr. Ça devrait être un intéressant développement quand ces débats se passent. Genevieve, j'apprécie le temps aujourd'hui. Merci beaucoup. Bienvenue. Genevieve Tellier, professor of School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa, joining us here. Uh, another week, by the way, and another aircraft snafu on the election campaign. You remember that a media bus drove underneath the wing of Liberal leader Justin Trudeau's campaign plane and caused a big scrape. Well, last night, after landing in Calgary, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer's campaign tour was briefly delayed when his chartered plane suffered a hydraulics issue while uh, with the ground steering equipment. And he was left on the tarmac for about an hour before the plane was towed to a parking area for repair. So not smooth sailing for either of the uh, two main uh, frontrunners in this election campaign. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Oil prices surging yesterday in the aftermath of an attack over the weekend on one of the world's biggest crude oil processing plants in Saudi Arabia. However, analysts say that yeah, Canadian gas prices are going to be affected They're not going to go, like, crazy high, are they? Well, let's bring in our next guest. His name is Dan McTagg, no stranger to the program, one of our faves, former Liberal MP and consumer affairs critic and analyst at GasPriceWizard.com, and he joins us now. Dan, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I'll be doing uh, better today than I probably will tomorrow with a little increase coming. <laughs> so what are we looking at here? Uh, Rick, four cents a liter, not eight. Uh, you heard him one uh all news uh, station in Toronto trying to push that uh, that the idea out there, but they forgot that we are have shifted from uh, more expensive summer gas to cheaper winter gas. Yay! Uh, that rather than getting an eight or nine cent increase, we wound up getting a net four cent increase. So if you don't like a dollar, uh, you know dollar sixteen, you're certainly not going to like a dollar twenty point nine at the high end. Of course, uh, here in Hamilton and uh, throughout much of the Niagara region, uh, we do see. A lot of competition, uh, which could bring those prices back down to about a dollar twelve, dollar thirteen. But uh, today's the day to fill up because uh, it looks like those prices are going to stay here for a little while. So, really, timing is any is everything. If this happened even a couple of weeks ago, we would have been in serious trouble. If this happened last week, if this happened next week, any other week, uh, we would have uh, had you know certainly seen a much greater impact, considering that. Uh, The one little thing uh, happened to be purely coincidental. And by the way, uh, Western Canada, so Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, all of BC gets an eight cent increase. They don't have the same uh, switch uh, over that we have here, even though it's a national mandate. They operate on a very different uh, time. So they're uh, facing a full effect of much higher prices. And of course, uh, that doesn't mean that we're out of the woods yet by any stretch. Uh, this is a very serious situation in the Middle East. And more importantly, Uh, unless Saudi Arabia can wave a magic wand, uh, pick up a couple brand new processors uh, from the local Canadian Tire or whatever they call it there, uh, it's not likely that this is going to be resolved anytime soon. And there continues to be really uh, what looks like a powder keg yeah, finally in 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 the, in the Middle East, and it has to be taken very seriously. There could be uh, follow-up uh, military strikes, more drone attacks. Uh, nothing is uh, is certain here, and of course that means. 
uh, major volatility when it comes to oil prices, diesel prices, and gasoline. And by the way, Rick, uh, for our listeners and friends here uh, on CHML looking for uh, you know diesel, make sure you do it today because it's going up nine, ten cents a liter overnight. Wow. Um, Not out of the woods yet. Powder keg, volatility, these are all concerning words and phrases. Uh, How greatly is Canada impacted by what's going on overseas, not only in terms of gas prices, but as you mentioned, diesel, oil, home heating fuel? Well, we are uh, in in ways that we probably can't conceive. Uh, We just don't have the oil to replace what has been lost. We, We would, could perhaps... If we had pipelines built in Canada going east to supply our own one refinery uh, uh, in New Brunswick, which happens to be the single largest refinery on the U.S. and Canadian East Coast, uh, the Irving refinery, uh, half of its oil comes from Saudi Arabia, so they're scrambling, and that could have effects in terms of supply shortages. On the West Coast, having a pipeline there would have been great because the largest market for Saudi exports is, in fact, China, uh, Japan, South Korea, India. Uh, we could have uh, probably provided maybe a tenth of uh, what is needed and made up some of the shortfall. And other countries are also in a in a really awful situation. Venezuela, the world's largest uh, provable supplies of oil behind, uh, just ahead of uh, Saudi Arabia and just ahead of Canada, uh, is in an economic uh, downturn and chaos reigns there. Uh, they're not able to do much. Uh, Iran, of course, can't do much. Uh, Mexico is uh, having economic problems with its output. So there really isn't any alternative right now, and it means for Canadians, in the past, when we've seen oil prices spike, as they did yesterday, we saw West Texas Intermediate as a benchmark up 8.05 a barrel, Brent, which is the world benchmark, up about 8.50, 8.60 a barrel. Uh, when that happened in the past, the Canadian dollar's value versus the U.S. greenback always kept pace. In other words, we were the petrodollar, no longer. In fact, I think we lost a little bit of value on the Canadian dollar, and that makes us far more vulnerable, not just for gasoline, but it also makes us uh, vulnerable in terms of all products. A weaker Canadian dollar makes uh, the cost of living in Canada much higher than I think most imagine. And unfortunately, because we just don't build pipelines in this country, we don't allow them in this country for a whole host of reasons, you and I are going to pay a very significant uh, and uh, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, incalculable uh, price for, uh, for the cost of energy and other products going forward. We're chatting with uh, Dan McTagg, a former Liberal MP and consumer affairs critic, and now analyst at GasPriceWizard.com here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill today. Uh, you mentioned pipelines. Energy East has been a discussion point for many months now. I know uh, those premiers out in the East have written a letter to the Prime Minister. They certainly want a pipeline out there. Uh, why no movement? I mean, it seems like, apart from the environmental concerns, it seems like the benefits outweigh uh, the cons here. They certainly do, but Quebec looms large. That's where the Liberals are going to get their seats. That's uh, the province that says no, uh, needs a social license. That's a problem, province, by the way, that has no trepidation and shamelessly, and I'm Sri Francais, I have no problem saying this, my family's from there, shamelessly cut, uh, cashes in $13 billion in equalization, much of that coming from Alberta's oil sands. Alberta's economy is on its knees because of pipeline blockages by foreign-funded organizations coming in and saying, you can't do this. And no other country in the world does this to itself. And, of course, Canada is in a real pickle because not being able to use two-thirds, three-quarters of this pipeline is already built. It's called the main line. It's been around for a long time, provided us natural gas. We'll get a lot more of that now from the United States. We just needed to get through Quebec, and Quebec said absolutely no. So I guess uh, it's, uh, it's, once again, the tail wagging the dog. And as a result, you and I are paying significantly for this. Uh, my sense, though, is that forget what happens internationally. 
right after this federal election, I think Alberta's going to pull the plug uh, and and ask for a referendum in its province on equalization. That uh, result, I think, is a foregone conclusion. And uh, from that point forward, I think uh, we're going to be talking real significant constitutional tensions in this country. Uh, it, you ju- it just can't hold. If you're going to have environmentalists and Quebecers blocking oil uh, while at the same time thinking nothing of cashing in $13 billion in hard-earned money that comes from that uh, that industry, uh, it kind of begs the question, uh, you know, um, for people in Alberta, is it Cupid or is it... I think maybe we've lost uh, Dan McTagg. We'll reconnect with Dan. Um, but he was raising a great point. You know, Alberta and its oil sands, and I used to live very close to that oil sands pro- projects, pluralized, with Syncrude and Suncor, now a host of others, there's billions upon billions of dollars that Alberta shifts to other provinces with those equalization payments. And it is a political grenade, especially for a ruling party right now in the Liberals, who are relying on Quebec voters to give them another mandate in Parliament. Uh, it's certainly a hot potato for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Dan, thanks for uh, uh, sticking on the line. <laughs> we lost you for a second. I'm not sure if the... Uh, anybody in Quebec was on the line and just kind of hit the eject button. But I was referring to the equalization payments. Can can the federal government, maybe not the one of the day because they're relying on seats in that province, but can a federal government say, hey, Quebec, we're going to hold your equalization payments until you agree to this Energy East pipeline? Well, you'd, uh, no one's going to do that because they need the seats there to win. And, of course, we know here in Ontario uh, that we like to vote the same way Quebec does, uh, and we'll see that in the next election. Uh, look, I've been an MP for was an MP for 18 years. I saw this play many, many times before. Uh, that's not going to wash. Uh, so, what uh, you know, the reason we don't have the energy's pipeline is simply because a bunch of activists in Quebec decided to walk into a, a national energy board meeting, hearings into the national into the energy east, and began flipping tables and threatening violence. We succumbed to that. We yielded to that. That's what the Trudeau government did, and it said. No more Energy East, no more Northern Gateway, no more any other pipeline except Trans Mountain Pipeline. Now we're facing the same problems there. And happily, the government of Fed Canada, after spending four and a half billion bucks for a 66-year-old pipe, isn't really serious about getting uh, that pipeline built either. Uh, If that were the case, they wouldn't have passed those two controversial bills, Bill C-48 and C-69. So I'm saying as a 38-year veteran of the Liberal Party, Parliament for that party for 18 years, uh, that uh, uh, this party is not interested in Canada's resource sector and uh, its substitute. I think, unfortunately, with renewables and all sorts of other things, is going to lead to the kind of uh, economic dislocation and constitutional dislocation that uh, this country probably doesn't see coming, but it can see it coming very quickly in 2020. Uh, it's more than a fair statement, that's for sure. Uh, back to the Persian Gulf and the issues at hand. Uh, U.S. President Donald Trump tweeting over the weekend that the U.S. is, quote, locked and loaded. Is this just adding fuel to the fire there? Well, I think he's he's tempered that remark uh, this morning in another tweet. Again, it's governed by tweet. Uh, you know, he's extremely concerned about the price of gasoline. <laughs> Interesting, we don't have the same thing from our prime minister, but it really goes to show the two different economies. The case, I think, is really one of waiting to see who is responsible for this and, and then acting accordingly. But I note Russia has already said, don't mess with, uh, with Iran, they're our buddies. So I'm not sure what this means. What it does mean for me, though, is that uh, the tension, volatility will continue to uh, to uh, dog oil prices. And, of course, uh, traders who have ignored the tension so far in the Middle East uh, are now starting to pay attention. Uh, we had a great summer. Uh, we profited from 
most investors thinking the trade between the United States and China was the big deal. I think now they're uh, turning their attention to, will we have enough oil to turn on the thermostats uh, to run our economies? And I think that's become a big, big issue since no other country can really provide uh, an alternative or make up the difference that's lost by by, uh, Saudi Arabia. And of course, uh, geopolitical tensions, a war, a conflagration, the powder keg that I think that exists there, is finally getting the attention it deserves. Unfortunately for us as consumers, it could cost us a lot more than we think. One more for you, Dan. Uh, we know that the markets hate uncertainty, and, and this appears to be, as you mentioned, a powder keg of uncertainty. Uh, are we expecting oil prices, gas prices to come back a little bit, go up a little bit over, over the next couple of weeks, or are they going to remain status yeah. quo? I think they're going to stay here, uh, and perhaps... Uh, depending on those two events. Once Saudi Arabia says how long it's going to take, and if it's longer than a few weeks, then we can expect oil prices and gasoline prices to rise. I think, Rick, at the same time, if uh, there's any escalation, a strike on, say, Iranian oil fields in retaliation, that's likely to uh, lead to escalation, uh, whatever that should mean. And, of course, that uh, would uh, push oil prices up well past $75 a barrel, which means that we could be looking at $1.30 for a litre of gasoline uh, by, uh, by Thanksgiving. Interesting stuff. Dan, appreciate the time today. Good to be here. Thanks for having me again, Rick. All right, take care. Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs Critic, analyst at GasPriceWizard.com. Apologies for the uh, cell phone imbalance. We'll we'll get there one of these days with technology, won't we? Uh, But certainly a story that we're going to be following uh, continually over the next days, weeks, months, however long it takes to uh, see this issue subside in the Persian Gulf. Certainly a lot of not only a lot of people, a lot of countries on edge in terms of uh, some of the next steps. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.